The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Today we continue in the Gospel of Matthew. And today's passage addresses two common approaches that someone might have towards Jesus Christ. One would be that you're a believer, you're trying to follow Christ, and you get to a point in your life where things aren't the way you originally thought they were going to be, and you find yourself facing discouragement and doubt. Another common approach to Jesus is, frankly, stubborn opposal to reject Jesus despite clear understanding of who Jesus is. In today's passage, Jesus will give a promise to both. You might be in either one of those positions today, or surely someone close to you might be in one of those, feeling doubt and discouragement over how could all this be, or frankly, refusing to accept Jesus for who he is. In today's passage, Jesus will speak to them both. Let's begin in Matthew 11, verse 1, as we follow along as Jesus deals with someone who is a believer, but is feeling discouragement and doubt. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, that is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. The original readers of the Gospel of Matthew would have known why John the Baptist is in prison. You might not, so let me catch you up to speed quickly. John the Baptist has denounced a very powerful political ruler known as Herod because Herod stole his brother's wife. So John called what Herod did sin. It is theft, it is coveting, it is adultery, it is a break of all of God's character and God's commands. And for his faithfulness, John was rewarded by being thrown in prison where he now very likely faces execution. So through his followers, he sent word to Jesus. Here we pick up in verse three. Here's what his word to Jesus was. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now John the Baptist, literally from his birth, was actually set aside to be the forerunner of Jesus. He has spent his entire life pointing people to Jesus. But now, for his faithfulness to Jesus, his sustained perseverance in, in belief and in behavior that is Christ-like, he's been rewarded with prison and faces death. He's in a moment of doubt and discouragement. And he's asking a question that really has been asked for thousands of years. We could rephrase it this way. Jesus, how do I know you are who you say you are? Or is there another way? Jesus, are you who you claim to be? Or could there be another way? Now, Jesus' response is very interesting. Rather than being personally wounded, Jesus points to the authority of Scripture fulfilled. So look in verse four. And Jesus answered them. So he's communicating to John, but through messengers. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Now, if you've been here, you know that in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus has been performing these incredible miracles 
But not because he's picking random miracles, because each one of the miracles he performs is fulfilling a promise of the Old Testament prophecy about what the Lord's Messiah would be capable of doing. So the Lord's Messiah is capable of giving the blind sight, giving the lame the ability to walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. This is the character of God's Messiah, and it is what Christ Jesus has done. And so Jesus is saying the scriptures are authoritative and trustworthy and they are in fact being fulfilled by me. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah who's come to rule and to reign, but first to save. Now, John the Baptist knows the very scriptures that Jesus is referring to. John knows Isaiah 35. He quotes from the Isaiah scroll himself. He knows Isaiah 61. He's familiar with the passages that Jesus is referring to, but it's as if Jesus is only picking part of the passage. See, those passages not only promised that there would be one who would come who could do miraculous miracles, but they also promised that the one who would come would pronounce judgment on sin. It's as if John the Baptist's question is this, Lord, why are you doing part of what the Bible says, but not all of what the Bible says? Why is your life not fulfilling the entirety of the promises? Because remember, when John the Baptist in Matthew 3 said that Jesus would come, he said that he would be like a winnowing fork separating the wheat from the chaff. He said that he would baptize with fire. So here's John sticking his neck out to call sin, sin, but Jesus is freely preaching and gathering crowds. Why isn't Jesus pronouncing judgment like John is? So here John faces discouragement because Jesus is preaching the good news but not pronouncing judgment with the same severity. Here's what we find then in John the Baptist that is so relatable to us. We sometimes, in obedience to the Lord, are trying to live the right way but then we find that what God is doing does not match our expectations of what God should be doing right now. Lord, shouldn't you be fulfilling this right now? Lord, shouldn't you be fulfilling this promise right now? Lord, what about this thing that you said you would do? Shouldn't it be happening right now? John the Baptist cannot believe that Jesus is not judging evildoers right now. I think in our culture, normally the problem is the opposite. We can't believe that Jesus would judge any evildoer at any time. We wonder how he could be capable of doing so. Our point, though, that is the same as John the Baptist, is that will we trust God and his word, even if his timing of working out his will is contrary to our expectations? Will we trust God and his word, even if his timing of working out his will is contrary to our expectations? So notice how Jesus speaks in verse six. Jesus now takes someone who's a believer, an incredibly faithful believer in John the Baptist, but does give him a gentle rebuke. Verse six, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The Greek word means to trip over or to stumble over. Someone who you're going the right direction, but then you trip up over something that doesn't seem to make sense to you. I love that Jesus is willing to say to John the Baptist, though he's been an incredibly faithful man, in this case, he's wrong. And in this situation, he must learn to trust God even in the timing of it. 
So before, though, the crowd start to view John the Baptist negatively, Jesus speaks positively of John the Baptist to these crowds. So look in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No, people went out to see John because he was so fearless and so faithful. Verse eight, so what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, John had an austere, difficult life. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are the king's houses, the very ones John called sinful. Verse nine, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. Jesus wants the crowd to know that John the Baptist should be commended for his unshakable faith, for his fearlessness, and for the fact that he actually is a fulfillment of scripture himself. That phrase, more than a prophet, John not only was a prophet telling people about Jesus, John was a fulfillment of prophecy himself. That's why verse 10 says, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. But now Jesus makes an incredible statement about John the Baptist that is so odd that you have to pause on it and really think on it so you can grasp what it means. Look in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay, no one's greater than John the Baptist, but now notice how the next sentence balances that. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What an interesting verse. No one born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist, but anyone in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. How do we make sense of that? When I was growing up um, in Michigan, when we want to go on vacation, we use the phrase up north. Because almost everyone lives in Detroit, and if you want to leave the city, you go up north. When my wife came to, to Michigan, where we lived together, she, the, the phrase made no sense to her, because to her, growing up in South Carolina, if you want a vacation, you go east, you go to the beach. <laughs> but we go up north, so a lot of people have a cabin on a lake up north. And the greatest exit, if you're going to vacation, other than the destination, is the exit right before the destination. <laughs> so for us, it was exit 212 on highway I-75. And so if the best thing other than 212 is exit 211, the exit right before there. So if you don't know how to get to the beach place you're gonna stay at, and you pull off, and you realize you're at the exit right before the destination you wanna get to, it is very good news to you if you find out you only have one more exit to go. Why is John the Baptist the greatest of all born among women? Here's why. Because he had the privilege of being the last prophet to point to Christ before Christ arrived. He's the exit right before the destination. His greatness is not actually about him. His greatness is relative to who he pointed to. And yet, notice how the verse continues. Anyone born on the other side of that destination, anyone who's seen the destination and come back, is greater than John the Baptist. So those who have been to the destination, but who have now driven back, have actually a greater status. You see, the point is this. Our greatness is not ultimately the sum of our good days or our tough days, our days of faithfulness or our days of doubt. Our greatness is totally tied to our knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. See, Jesus is commending John because he was the last one to point to Jesus. 
But greater than John is anyone who knows the king in his fullness. Those who know Jesus in his full, complete atoning work. He who came and lived and died and rose. So this morning, do you know the destination to which John pointed? If you know Christ for all he's done for you, lived for you, died for you, rose for you, then you have an even greater greatness than he who pointed to him. Now notice verse 12. And yet, not all believe. Because from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. This is the inflection point in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapters 11, 12, and 13, we see the crowds that were once following Jesus now start to oppose Jesus, and that violence is growing. But verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Two things I think are worth pointing out here. First, verse 13, all the prophets, all the Old Testament does point to Jesus. Here's another reminder of that. But also verse 14 and 15. The problem is not that people point to Jesus. Jesus is pointed to everywhere. The heavens declare the glory of God. The problem is an unwillingness to accept him. This should be easy for us to grasp because we live in a cultural moment where there's a lot of tribalism, and my sideism, and a lot of shouting, and a lot of fingers in people's ears. And in those moments, there is no dialogue. There is no discussion. There is only monologue and a refusal to move from my position. Jesus here makes clear, if you are willing to accept it, you can accept it. If you're willing to have ears to hear, you can hear. But overall, most people don't. And so now we move to the wide rejection of Jesus that makes no sense. Look in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces playing to their playmates. Verse 17, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. In the first century, if you're at the marketplace and all your parents are shopping, the children are out there and they want to play and there's not a whole lot for them to play with. And the two most common cultural things they would have seen that they would have based their games off of were a wedding, which in Jewish culture was a week of celebration, or a funeral, which also in Jewish culture would have had loud music and performance. So if a little kid was playing with all the other little kids in the marketplace, there were two games that he could offer. Do you want to play dance or wedding or do you want to play dirge or funeral? But notice here's the kid asking the other kids to play. But notice verse 17 says, the kids will not respond with dancing and they will not respond with mourning. In other words, no matter what game he chooses, they refuse to play. These are kids in a spat. These are kids that refuse to play. And they will claim, well, if you play the, the one tune, I'll play. Well, I'll play that tune. But then they don't play. Well, if you play the other tune, then I'll play. Well, they play that tune and they don't play. They claim the reason they won't play is the tune, but the real reason they won't play is because it's not their tune. We have uh, four children that God's blessed us with, and we have three summer birthdays. We have May, June, July. Our fourth was born the day after Christmas, so it's hard to forget his birthday. (laughs) 
But the summer birthdays go back to back to back. And this year, perhaps something could happen in their birthday celebration that I pray won't happen, but it could happen like this. I don't know if your children ever did this to you. My kids, for the entire 364 days leading up to their birthday, they tell me what they would like for their birthday party. (laughs) I would like this music. I would like these balloons. Could we maybe get this present? Probably it's my fault because anytime we're out and they say, can we buy this? I say no. For my birthday, maybe. So they've been storing up a mental list. And when the birthday comes, what may happen that can happen in a lot of homes is a scenario kind of like this. The birthday comes and you have everything for them that they asked for and yet at some point during the party, they storm off and they're crying and maybe they slam the door to their room and you go and you find them and you open the door and you sit down and they say, this party is stupid. These presents are stupid. These people are stupid. These gifts are stupid. And at that moment, if you can restrain yourself, you'll realize that the thing that they're really angry about has nothing to do with the party. They're not mad at the balloons. They're not mad at the presents. There's a reason behind the reason that they're blaming. And the reason behind the reason is that it's not going their way. See, in this verse, Jesus says, there's a kind of person that you can offer them the dance or you can offer them the dirge, but it's never good enough. And the reason is because they want to hold the flute That's the real reason behind the reason. See, the truth is many people reject Jesus and they claim it's for multiple reasons that aren't actually the reason. Look now in verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he is a demon. Verse 19, the son of man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, so John the Baptist represents the dirge. He came in an austere life. He came pronouncing judgment. And they said, oh, John the Baptist, he's too dour. Jesus came in a convivial way. He sat with sinners. He was a friend of sinners. And then they say, well, Jesus, he's too celebratory. He's too loose. Whether it's the dirge or the dance, neither one are enough because of the verse we read earlier, verse 15, if you're willing to accept it. But as long as you're unwilling, you can blame the dance, you can blame the dirge, but that's not actually the problem. You have fingers in your ears. And so your anger is not the thing you claim, but it's in fact the fact that you're not in control. Jesus is making a very simple point that is often lost on us. No one is neutral. We interpret data in light of our pre-chosen ultimate authority. Perhaps you've heard this illustration before. There's a man, he walks around, he's talking with other people, but he's convinced that he's dead. So he's living, but he's convinced that he's dead. And so you try to help him realize that he's alive, even though he's going around telling everybody that he's dead. So you say, hey, look, let me take the three most well-respected medical science books and I'm going to have them in front of them and you read them. And all three of the books make clear that a person who's dead cannot bleed. And so you cut the man's hand and he bleeds and he looks with open eyes at his hand that's now bleeding and you say, see, what does this prove? And the man says, it proves that medical science is wrong. (laughs) because he's already chosen a commitment to himself as the ultimate authority, you see? 
No one's neutral. Everyone believes something based on the authority we have chosen as ultimate. Some people say, well, you know, Jesus, Christianity is a dirge. It's too condemning. Jesus judges lifestyles that I think he should embrace. Christianity is too dour. It's too judgmental. Other people argue, well, you know, Christianity is too much of a dance. It's too accepting. Jesus would forgive murderers like Saul, slave owners like John Newton. How could a God who's holy forgive people like that? They complain about the dirge. They complain about the dance. But you know what actually is the problem? Is that they are not the one making the selection. See, it's not the tune. It's that it's not your tune. And that's Jesus' point when he says, to what shall I compare this generation? Now, lest you think he's only talking about the first century, know that the Bible uses the phrase this generation fairly often to refer to a type of person. Have you ever heard someone say, well, millennials have these qualities. Baby boomers have these qualities. They're making stereotypical generalities about a type That's what Jesus often does with the phrase, this generation. See, there's a type of person who will claim that it's the tune or the dourness or the celebratoriness, but that's not actually the problem. But I know this passage may seem like one that doesn't have any application for you if you're a Christian. Let me give an application that that is a difficult one for me to talk about, but hopefully will be helpful to you. The dance or the dirge are not the issue. When my wife and I very strongly desired to have children, for many years we were unable to bear children. It was a very painful time in our life. It was compounded by the fact that we were ministering to children in our community who had mothers who did not care about them. There was a family on the other side of town, the woman had nine children who were birthed to her by five fathers. These children, we would pick up for church and we would get involved in their life. And as we went to their house, we realized that they were not kidding when they said they did not have food. They literally had none. My wife and I went in their home. We found lots of alcohol and cigarettes, but no food at all. Not a cracker, not a sandwich, nothing. And so Steph would make them lunches and meals and we'd bring them over to them and we'd bring them to church. And I remember the day that that mother said to me, she said, I don't care about any of these kids. But the reason I have them is because I will make more money by having them and remaining unmarried than you'll ever make in your lifetime. And she was right. (laughs) But the pain of that was a great difficulty for me. Why is it that this woman has all of these children whom she hates when we can't have any children who we would so love to have? Now, during that season, I remember going to baby showers with my wife and seeing the difficulty of taking her to those, though we really were trying to celebrate other people. I remember going to Mother's Day, and I was from a church, uh, I'm not trying to be angry about, but just the reality was they, they made f- like fertility the highest honor on that day, and that was especially difficult to go through on those Mother's Days. Here's the reality about the dance and the dirge. Some people approach a day like Mother's Day, like we did for several years, in considerable pain and wanting the day to appropriately lament. Other people approach a day like 
Mother's Day, longing for celebration, wanting the dance. But both people will wake up Monday and be unsatisfied. The dance can never be celebratory enough. And the dirge can never lament enough because the problem that God showed my wife and I that I think we would remember the day was that our issue was not the dance or the dirge. Our issue deep down was that we thought we should have control over our own lives. And I remember reading with my wife by Jerry Bridges the book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. And I remember getting to the point of realizing wherever the Lord gives is right. And whatever the Lord chooses is best. Whether it's the dance or the dirge, I'd rather he play the flute than me. See, the point Jesus is making here is no matter what he plays, so to speak, there's a person who will reject. And the reality is you need to get to the point where you realize that you being in control is the worst possible thing, but the sovereign God who's good, you can trust whatever the tune. Now verse 20. Those who won't trust though, those who refuse, it's not the matter of evidence. They have more than enough evidence. It's an unwilling heart. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Notice, most of his mighty works. Jesus did scores and scores of miracles that aren't recorded in the Gospels. John tells us that at the end of his Gospel. Many miracles have been done that aren't in these books but were in front of these people. Woe to you, Chorazin. Where do you best say to? All these cities rejected tons of evidence. Do you know why? Unbelief is not an evidence problem. Unbelief is not the lack of evidence, it's the presence of hostility. No one is neutral. And so with a heart that opposes God, we reject regardless of the incredible grace in front of us. In fact, Jesus says something even more damning. If that level of grace had been seen by a city like Tyre and Sidon, Gentile pagan cities, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. See, our desires for something to be or not be drowned out reality. Verse 21, they would have repented. Verse 22, so I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for those who had much revelation and much grace but who refused to repent. Surely there is a great application here for us and our country of much revelation, of much grace, of much opportunity, of much goodness that points to our creator, and yet much rejection. Verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Because if the mighty works done in Capernaum, Jesus' second home base in his public ministry, if those were done in Sodom, the place thought of by Jews as the worst of all cities probably, then Sodom never would have been burned down. It would remain to this day. Even more sobering, notice verse 24. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is there are degrees of felicity, there are degrees of punishment. To whom much is given, much is required. And the goodness that God has shown, if it's rejected, bears a higher cost. So what do we do? 
Jesus has a promise now for anybody. If you're here today and you're in doubt and discouragement, life isn't what you thought it was gonna be based on the promises of scripture as you understood them, like John the Baptist. Or if you're here and frankly, you've been suppressing the truth even though you know it's true, kinda like someone who's in a pool in their backyard and they're holding a beach ball with all their effort to push it under the water. You're trying as hard as you can to deny reality. What do you do? Well, you find rest. And that's verse 25 and 30. 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Those in this world who think of themselves as wise and knowledgeable, God has withheld what they are also fighting in hostility. But those who recognize their dependency like children notice to them God has revealed these things. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God in his sovereignty reveals truth. Those who come to humble themselves receive it. In fact, the next verse will make clear that God has given that right to the Son to reveal to whomever he chooses. When I read this passage, though, I think of a man born in 354 A.D. in northern Africa. His name is Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. He was a very intellectually gifted man. And as he grew, he read and studied and he tried to figure out the meaning of all things. And as he thought about God, he refused to accept God. And he said, there's no way there could be a God because there's so much evil in the world. But later Augustine realized this. I was seeking for an answer to the question, where does evil come from? And yet I sought it in an evil way and did not see the evil in my very search. No one's neutral. (laughs) We look at the evidence from a presupposition and Augustine finally realized that. Now at a moment where he thought it was hopeless but he finally came to a point of childlike brokenness, Augustine sat by himself in a garden. And there, not knowing what to do, he looked up to heaven and cried out, how long, O Lord? And in God's sweet providence, there were two children praying, playing in the garden nearby. And in Latin, they were saying, tola lege, tola lege, which means take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And so Augustine took up and read what had been left in the garden. And it was a parchment, a scroll of Romans 13. And in it, Augustine read about God's hatred for sin. And in it, Augustine realized that though he was complaining about the world being evil, he was evil. But Romans 13 went on to say, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day, in a moment of childlike dependence, Augustine, who had previously argued against God intellectually, realized that he was biased in his view and turned to Christ in salvation. And years later, Augustine wrote this, Lord, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Look now in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That promise, understood in the context of Matthew 11, is for all of us dealing with doubt and discouragement, even on days like today. And all of us trying to come up with intellectual arguments against Jesus' reality, even though it's not the dance or the dirge, it's that we wish 
We were in control. That takes effort. It is wearying and burdensome to oppose the reality of who God is in Christ. And so when we finally put that down, we find rest. So verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the first century, the Pharisees would often talk about the yoke of the law. If you don't know what a yoke is, it's a wooden beam that connects two animals, normally oxen, so that they can tread out the grain together. The Pharisees' idea was if you try to keep the law, then with your good effort and the law's good guidance, maybe one day your good will outweigh your bad. But Jesus says, no, take my yoke, mine is easy. How can he say that? How can Jesus say that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? It's because he took the hardest yoke, the wrath of God against sin. It's because he bore the heaviest burden, our disobedience, our rebellion, our sin in his body. It's because he died on the cross in our place. It's because he rose victoriously that he can say what I offer is easy and light. It's because he carries it. This promise is good news for all of us who reject. Why resist when you can rest? Why bear discouragement and doubt when you can have a burden lifted? See, it's not the dance or the dirge. Don't complain the tune. Don't argue God's providence. Don't argue the evidence. Find rest by looking to the one who lived for you and died in your place and rose victoriously. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 39, whoever will find his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, I pray that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. This passage makes very clear that God the Father is sovereign over that and that he must work. But the passage is also clear that we must respond like children and be poor in spirit. So God, I pray that you would grant us ears to hear and I pray that you would grant us the humility to receive what might be hard for us to admit, that we're biased, that we could claim that it's the dance or the dirge, but in reality it's that we wanna hold the flute. So Lord, give us the humility to recognize that in our culture people complain that Jesus is too judgmental, he's too harsh, he condemns people. It's the dirge. Or people complain that, well, how could Jesus forgive people who have done horrible things? How could he forgive people who live horrible lives? And they complain about the dance. But ultimately, Lord, what we have to realize is that we are not God. But there is a God who's infinitely wise, infinitely good. And we can see that in the cross because the person who bore the heaviest burden was your son. So Lord, help us to come to Jesus and find rest for our souls. 
Lord, I pray for people who have been stubbornly refusing and arguing about this or that. May they realize that the reality is they need to find rest by stopping the arguing and the complaining and looking to the person who is airtight and perfect, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for our society, I pray for our city, I pray for the South, I pray for our country. Lord, we have had so much grace. May we not be like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Lord, may it not be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom than for us who have had so much demonstration of God's goodness and so much revelation. On our phones, we can pull up the Bible in any translation or language. May we be tender to the truth therein. But Lord, I also pray for those who may be feeling like my wife and I felt on a day like today with doubt and discouragement. Like John in a quiet dungeon thinking, Lord, I've tried to do what you said, but I don't see why it's not all happening the way I thought it would. May they not stumble over the path that they're on. May they not trip over the truth that they know. May they look to Jesus who will carry their hardest pains and yet always be good and wise even when we don't see it in the moment. So Lord, we trust you and we pray that you would give us more trust and may you work even in these next few moments. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.